Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. Bill Radke here, convening a panel of local journalists. Are you a panel? A committee? A task force? <laughs> a blue ribbon commission of local journalists. We have here <laughs> Seattle Times reporter Amanda Zoe. Welcome back, Amanda. Hi, everyone. Crosscut columnist Knute Berger. Welcome back, Knute. Hey, Bill. Seattle Met deputy editor. Welcome back, Allison Williams. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Bill. And you can see the full tribunal <laughs> committee, the gang, uh, as I am on your computer because, you know, we live stream the show. Just go to YouTube or Facebook and search KUOW Public Radio and uh, you can watch along. Let's, uh, let's talk about what happened this week. For better or for worse, there was progress this week on pandemic restrictions. The indoor mask mandates lifted over the weekend. Many school districts are now mask optional, including Seattle. The principal of Lowell Elementary thought it was going to be bumpy, but Sarah Talbot says it hasn't been. She says about 60% of her kids are still masking and students are being nice. I thought there might be some teasing or bullying or bothering people one way or the other, but really I haven't heard anything from any classroom teachers and I have been kind of asking around and just peeking in places and it's really not come up. She does say that most kids are taking off their masks at recess. Have any of you been taking your masks off at recess? <laughs> you know, I've been surprised. I've been uh, walking around. I live in central Seattle and I have Allison, taken my mask. Way. Yes. yes. Um, and I have seen a lot more mask removal than maybe I expected, but I'm seeing a lot of the service staff uh, employees still keeping them on coffee shops, grocery stores. Um, not 100%, so I don't know that it's employer mandated in that case, but I think what I'm seeing is, I know I still wear in a grocery store and a coffee shop, and I'm seeing a lot of the people who work there seem to be choosing to keep that on uh, for their own safety, I, I think. What have you seen, Amanda? Yeah, it's been the same thing. Um, I'm also surprised by how many people are taking them off. I guess, you know, I'm not convinced this will be the last time we have to wear masks or that there'll be a mandate. Um, but I guess people are sort of enjoying it in the meantime. I'm still keeping my mask on um, for most things. But I mean, I, I've been dining indoors. Uh, I've been a little bit looser at the gym because I feel like it makes a real difference when you're not wearing a mask. Um, but I, I'm still I'm still taking one with me on the road. But the huffing and puffing at the gym sort of daunts me, so it cuts both ways. Uh, but that's interesting. How about, how about you, Knut? I've never seen the inside of a gym, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, uh, no, I'm still uh, being careful with a mask. Uh, I have, you know, high, high at-risk family members, and and uh, uh, just this last week, uh, uh, a colleague. Uh, that I was in studio with on uh, last week and we're careful and masked and separated and, and all that kind of thing. And um, they took off their mask uh, to socialize with some folks over the weekend and, and tested positive, mm -hmm. you know, so it's still out there. It's still circulating. Uh, even if you've been careful for two years, that doesn't mean, you know, you can't get it or spread it. You know what I don't want is for my mask to be yet another prickly partisan signal. Uh, I was at my local QFC and masked up and a friend came up to me. No mask. Glad to see him. We're chatting. And I wondered, is he thinking that I'm thinking that he's a reckless 
right wing crank, <laughs> which I was not thinking. So I took my mask off to talk to him. It was just me and him by the raspberries, and then I put it back up when we parted ways. I guess that's how I'll do it. You know, I was surprised. I spent a few days in Utah uh, for a ski vacation uh, a couple weeks ago. Felt okay on the airplane. Uh, for the most part, we're skiing. So, But in grocery stores and such, absolutely nobody was wearing a mask. Definitely shocked to the system for someone from Seattle. Yeah. But my wearing a mask, I was expecting a little more pushback. And for the most part, if I just sort of stayed upbeat and didn't linger on it, uh, at least there, I was not getting any pushback. So here, I'm not expecting too many, too much weirdness of I chose to, you chose not to. Mm. Um, I think we've all just gotten super awkward over the pandemic, and we're all used to just weird, awkward interactions. Now. Right. Let's cut each other some slack. Uh, some, some Seattle teachers are protesting the move to mask optional. They think the district rammed it through without bargaining it enough. And some pro-masking students say they're going to stage a, wask, a walkout on Monday. But the school superintendent says that we're just following the guidance from Seattle King County Public Health. Um, so you, how, how many local businesses do you figure are still requiring vaccines and masks? What percentage do you figure? It has to be in the minority. Like I, you know, pulling it out of my head randomly, I'd say like maybe 15% are requiring it. I think a lot of them are pretty eager to toss, you know, the extra requirement for servers to be checking Vax cards. Mm -hmm. um, some places are hanging around and it seems like most customers hopefully aren't giving them too much of a hard time. Some restaurants I've talked to said that where they can expect harassment is online through the comments. Mm. Um, that's sort of where they get pushback. Right. I've heard the same thing that the that it was online announcements about their policies that got the most attention rather than in person. I know that does happen some pushback, but it does sound like advertising their policies tends to be where some small businesses. Well, you, you the reason I don't I don't want to give up my mask is it's taken me two years to get one that's <laughs> that's comfortable. You know, it, it, well, it's just you know I I find I have an N95 that actually fits on my face, over my beard, mm. steam my glasses, I can breathe while I'm wearing it. And I, yeah, so it's like, I finally figured it out now they're telling <laughs> But you, do you have enough spare masks so that you can rotate those? Yes, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. I We've spent a small fortune on, uh, on masks and disposable ones and yeah. Okay. And now's the time maybe to stock up. I was just thinking about that. I was like, I do think they're going to be coming back uh, in future waves. And now is probably a very good time to find them on sale. Yes. Yeah, I did order tests. some rapid tests. Uh -huh. Yep. Yeah. Stock up on the test too. Right now, COVID yeah. cases and hospitalizations are falling. Uh, the, the Omicron subvariant BA2 made up a quarter of new cases in the U.S. last week, and it has shown up in Washington state. But our state epidemiologist, Scott Linquist, says so far it doesn't appear to be extra dangerous and it's not driving any surges here. If we see a new variant coming or an increase in any of the subvariants, we'll be the first to know. And we are not seeing that right now. People are really concerned about the BA2 or the subvariant of Omicron. We have detected it for a month plus now, but it has not had the rapid increase like the initial Omicron variant. And then there's the Deltacron subvariant and all that stuff that we're watching. If we're told to, this is the last question on, on a pandemic before we move on. If we're told to go back to masks at some point, do you think people will do it? You know, are we are we have we more are we more flexible now or less less flexible after all this time? I, I think we're likely to be less flexible. I can uh, just from a historical standpoint, 
when they took the mask mandate off in, in late 1918 here in Seattle uh, and also in San Francisco. Um, and then the, the flu resurged. They couldn't get people back on mandatory masks in early 1919. People had bonfires of masks, mass rallies. They wanted to recall politicians. Uh, you know, it was it was just impossible to reimpose the mandate. Mm. All right, that's Knut Berger, who is 119 years old, which comes in handy for the when you want that perspective. <laughs> Knut is with the is the Crosscut columnist, the Mossback, and we've got Seattle Mets Allison Williams and Seattle Times Amanda Zoe with us. Uh, now uh, we also in the news this week we switched to daylight saving time. Of course, uh, today's sunrise was as late as uh, seven uh, sixteen this morning. Uh, or I should say as early as 7.16 this morning, and sunset is up to 7.19. And uh, this week, the U.S. Senate voted to make daylight saving time permanent. And Washington's Senator Patty Murray is one of the sponsors of that. She said this week on Fox 13 that we need to end the nightmare of the time switch. We're just tired of changing our clocks, trying to explain to our kids and our pets and ourselves that we have to lose an hour of sleep again, or we have to gain an hour, and we're trying to figure it out. Really? Have you ever had trouble explaining the time switch to your kids and your pets and yourself? Is this really a problem? I would say that around the time change is when I hear from my friends with small children about the absolute havoc it wreaks on on their lives and schedules. My pet is happy to sleep all day, regardless of what the clock says, so it's not a problem. But... The one thing I haven't heard from the parents that have complained about the the changing schedule is a worry about that go that uh, worry about kids having to get up so early that they're going to school in the dark. And back in the 70s, when they tried permanent daylight savings time, uh, that's one thing that is cited for why it became so unpopular and was changed is that kids were going to school in the dark. I don't know that a lot of kids, of at least my friends who have kids, are, are having them wait for a bus by themselves out front or walk to school. So I don't know if that's going to be the boogeyman that it was last time around as far as an argument against permanent daylight savings. Why do you think that's changed? Why, why kids are not walking in the dark as much as they would be in the 70s? I think we just see fewer kids that are walking to schools. People are not as close to their schools as they used to be. Or um, the idea of parents driving their kids to school is just a, a lot more normalized now uh, than it was, yeah. I think, in the, the 70s, I think. Uh, you know, we hear we hear anecdotally people talking about the good old days when the kids were five years old and walking themselves halfway right. across town by themselves. But, right, right. Um, <laughs> but also, I think here in Washington, I mean, we our our sunrise is early and uh, is late enough, even with daylight savings changes. We were going to school in the dark anyway. So um, I think that's something that we've already kind of adapted to. Mm. Um, I think if this does pass the House of Representatives, which it still has to do, um, for it to become actually a thing. We might talk a little bit about those early school start times, just so that the the high schoolers who are going to school at 7.15 in the morning are not doing several hours in the dark. Amen. But that would be my expectation. Mm-hmm. Other reactions to uh, daylight saving time actually passing the sen- the U.S. Senate as a permanent thing after all this time? We've been waiting. Washington State has is already okayed this. We've been waiting for Congress. I, I have some real mixed feelings here um, because I'm certainly someone who really struggles with mornings. Like, I would love extra time after work, but also, 
you know, this hour change this week really hit me hard. And I, I feel like I'm still adjusting to this one hour change, um, you know, five days later. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am sort of concerned about all these scientists and sleep and depression experts who are saying that permanent daylight savings time would not be good for us. Um, that, you know, our body needs the sun to rise and set at the time it does right now. Um, they seem to be sort of raising the alarm about this bill being passed. Uh, so I, I guess I'm listening to those voices right now. Yeah. Senator Murray addressed that, the dark morning problem. And, and she said she thinks people, people want their light later. If it's dark in the morning, I understand that, but I know it's going to get light. But once it gets dark at four <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon, that's that's the end of the day. Not, it's not really the end of the day, though. It's just dusk <laughs> when you live at latitude 47 and it's late December. <laughs> it gets dark early. And, and if this law passes, the sun won't rise until 855 on that same day. Canute, what do you think? Well, Bill, since you, uh, you know, gra- graciously reminded everybody how old I am at uh, 19. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, being being older, it's like I get up in the dark no matter what. You know, I get up early in the dark. Uh, I like it dark on the other end um, because I go to bed early, too. You know, I've, I've got the old man habits now. But at and, least you remember the flu pandemic, clearly. Yeah, well, exactly. Back in the in the flu pandemic. We, uh, but the other thing is, I just want somebody to pick. You know, I, I've read the arguments on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, they don't apply to to me particularly. I don't care whether they go to standard time all the time or daylight savings. I just it's just like pick one and stick with it. And if you can get Congress or the Senate to unanimously agree on something, I, I feel like in this day and age, you go with that. But I wonder how hard this is. You, you and I, Canute, are both of a certain age, and I'm wondering: are, are Allison and Amanda are both are are both uh, younger, significantly younger? And uh, I just want: do, does anybody under I don't know forty really worry about their iPhone instantly, suddenly, knowing what time it is? Is this really a big problem? Senator Murray made it sound like like it was traumatic. I don't, I, I don't big... think it's as traumatic as she said. I think it still it disrupts everyone. I mean, Amanda, you're saying it still is throwing you off. And it, it certainly does for me, like for everyone, anytime your schedule gets shifted a little bit. Um, I And I, I think that the idea that our sleep will be disrupted if we, uh, no matter what we do, is an interesting thing. We, we're learning more and more about the quality of sleep and how that affects health. Mm-hmm. And any move that we make that affects everybody's sleep might change the overall health of Americans, uh, even just a little bit. But I do think there's so many other factors that influence our sleep that I don't know that this back and forth is doing great for the quality of our sleep. And I think when we look at things like our exposure to screens and light, uh, artificial light, the effect that might be having it on our sleep and therefore our health, I think might be a bigger impact than a slightly later morning. But that's a very Mm non-scientific guess on my part. Yeah, I think it's a good guess, though. Yeah. Can we oppose this, the Sunshine Protection Act, just on the basis of the name alone? The idea that we are protecting the sunshine? Uh, can we get the sun, think... Sunshine Acquisition Act or something like that? Yeah. Can we actually make more of it? Let's be clear that we're not changing time no. or, or astronomy. You no. know, we're just simply changing our experience of it, which is totally subjective. <laughs> Right. I mean, if Congress is actually going to 
to to put a giant iron rod through the earth, allowing it to <laughs> to pull one end, and 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 that would be great to get rid of some of the wobble. You know, that would be cool. But I think it's it's I think it's not really that. But the the House is going to vote on this, and they're going to give it. It would go to Biden for a signature, and they're still going to give it another year before it would happen because it does bring along its own issues of changing airplane schedules and stuff like that. Okay. And, yes, go on. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I noticed I lived in New York City for a while and then came back to the, the West Coast. And one thing I noticed right away is that just in general, on the West Coast, we do things earlier in the morning, probably having to do with the fact that, you know, much of the business workday is based around East Coasts. And so, right. you know, dental offices would be open at 730 or 8 a.m. here, whereas in New York, the first appointment would always be at nine. And it, it was just sort of a general sense that I immediately felt when I changed coasts. So I think what we decide as a society is the start and end of our workday and our business day has a lot more to do with just uh, what the clock says. It, it has to do with a lot of societal factors. Yes, that's a great point. I, maybe we could get behind a, a later start for, as you say, schools could start later and yeah, dentist office could start. Maybe we just say, okay, we made it dark in the morning. So let's do less in the morning. Let's do less. That's my campaign slogan as I run for governor as well. Uh, or for president. Uh, yeah, or president. You're listening to Week in Review, and uh, we've got um, Allison Williams here, deputy editor at Seattle Met, Seattle Times reporter and, and Amanda Zoe, and Crosscut columnist Knut Berger. Uh, all of it's happening online. Uh, you can live stream the show at YouTube or Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio. That's a little bit of the news of the week, and we've got um, a half an hour left or so. So let's come uh, take a quick break and come right back and continue to discuss the news on the week in review. It's KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. As the Russian assault on Ukrainians continues, Vladimir Putin has said that his nuclear arsenal is on special combat readiness. And Knut Berger, you wrote this week that we live in a potential ground zero. Uh, yeah, we sure do. I mean, the largest single concentration of uh, nuclear weapons in the world is at Bangor and Kitsap County. Uh, and uh, at any given time, some of those are circling the globe with our Trident submarines and whatnot. But <clears throat> and all of them contain plutonium that was manufactured at one time or another at Hanford. Um, you know, the whole atomic era was made possible by the Manhattan Project. And one of those key things was a manufacturing facility for plutonium which went into the bomb that dropped on uh, that we dropped on uh, Nagasaki, which was the last time human beings were attacked with a, nu a nuclear weapon. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I think this era just uh, with the war in, in Ukraine, the rhetoric that uh, Vladimir Putin, Russian head of Russia has used um, has everybody on the alert that that we're moving toward potentially toward a situation where a, a, a nuclear weapon, even a limited nuclear weapon, so-called, uh, might be used uh, in in a conflict uh, somewhere. And that raises, uh, you know, really serious concerns. And we, how much of it is our nuclear presence and how much just as a strategic target 
with, for example, Joint Base Lewis McCord, we've got we've got we have a lot of military here, which maybe long timers know more than newcomers know. Yeah, it's it's a huge industry in the Puget Sound region. If uh, you know, I think at one time it was the third largest industry when you include Boeing, Boeing's defense work. Many, I, I remember when the Gulf War happened, uh, we did an article on companies on the east side that were manufacturing things for use in the Gulf War. It was amazing how many how many companies there are that are doing defense business. Uh, uh, in addition to Boeing, and then and then of course you have Bangor, as you mentioned, you have the air bases of all kinds, and I know that you know going back to the 1960s when we were afraid that the bomb was going to drop at any minute, the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on, people were building bomb shelters. You know, I, as an eight-year-old in that era, you know, I, w- I was terrified. You know, I wanted uh, I wanted my family to build a bomb shelter and they, they wouldn't do it. So, you know, I just uh, I was uh, sort of shocked. By why, the time, why did they tell you they weren't going to build a bomb shelter? Well, I mean, we had my mother was doing some house hunting. We went to a home that had a fully stocked bomb shelter. It was, uh, you know, and I just fell in love with it. And I was like, why can't we have one? of these It's perfect. I'll house. take it. <laughs> yes, exactly. If we're not going to buy this house, can we do the same thing at our house? Uh-huh. You know. And now that bomb shelter is actually on Airbnb as a uh, <laughs> overnight <laughs> rental. Short-term <laughs> bomb shelter rental. Well, and you know, and my parents, my dad, my dad was like, "Oh well, he had a basement dark room." He's like, "Well, we we go down there," you know. And it was like the thing was full of bottles of chemicals and his old beer bottles, you know. <laughs> was hardly a secure place. We had drills at school and all. We had air raid sirens every Wednesday mm. noon. They went off. Um, you know, so the atmosphere was such. But by the time I got to junior high, um, I remember I was in a class and we were told, you know, we did a bomb thing where we were told to get under the tables in biology class. And, you know, some kids stood up and said to the teacher, isn't it true if there was a, a bomb dropped here that it would create an explosion that would drive all the glass in that window through this room. And then the vacuum would suck it back and we'd be torn to shreds, you know? Whoa. (laughs) That's all too much information, kid. Yeah. And I think in that moment, we all looked at each other and like, yep, you know, um, you know, hiding in a fallout shelter is not, not really going to save us. Hmm. And I think some people actually had a little bit of point of pride about, well, we're a number one target, you know, Mm. Uh, (laughs) it's like, go Boeing. Uh, Amanda and Allison, I wonder how much of this, this, this history, you know, this part of the Pacific Northwest, you know about and whether you're, it's, it's, it's uh, something you think about. Uh, It is really new to me. I actually didn't know it until um, those stories came out about our nuclear arsenal I think for me, I'm not terribly concerned that we're on like the brink of a nuclear disaster. Um, I think there would have to be a lot, a lot of more steps for us to get to that place. Um, I, I do think, however, it is interesting in that it sort of gives me context in terms of, you know, what this war impacts. It's more than just the people fighting the front lines or high gasoline prices, you know, like these tiny, simply producing more nuclear warheads is something that's noticed globally. and. You know, they're coming into attention because we're in this there's a conflict mm-hmm. and you know I, I grew up here so i remember we looked for submarines up on the hood canal uh when i was a kid and 
I, I think I didn't know really the scope of our, our nuclear weapons, but I really appreciate how Knut is talking about also our history and, you know, the nuclear reservation out in Hanford, out in central Washington um, is a, um, I believe, a national monument, part of the national park system now. And it's a little hard to access be- in some ways because of uh, it, that area has a lot of um still energy work and um, cleanup and all sorts of things going on, but you can visit it and you can see the place that plutonium was first made and um, learn a little bit about the role it played in World War II and the bomb at Nagasaki. And so I think it's really important to note that this has been part of the fabric of our economy and our culture for a long time. And I think that you know, we're so dependent. We think about hydropower so much as like the that's the Northwest thing, but I think it's important to, to understand that nuclear weapons and energy have been a part of the Northwest for a really long time. And there's not, there's not a, that's what they do. That's their problem kind of mentality that we can really seriously embrace. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if Richland High School is still, their mascot is still the bombers, Canute. You might know that, but it was for <laughs> yeah, a long time. <laughs> yeah, and well, and, and as Allison mentioned, that, that, that hydropower was one of the reasons that they built uh, Hanford. You know, because they needed the water and the power from uh, Grand Coulee Dam, which was brand new. And they also needed a very remote area in the 1940s. You know, it was it was largely just desert. And um, so there's a reason why that happened, uh, that happened here. But it's it continued, of course, after the war. And, uh, you know, it is it is part of our economy. It's the kind of thing we also have had a very active in the past, uh, anti-nuke movement, yeah. uh, groups like Target Seattle and whatnot, from the, back in the 19, late 70s and 80s, uh, you know, there were people, activists sitting in and protesting at Bangor and that kind of thing. So, and I sense that that is going to be revived a little bit. I think there's already, even before uh, the Ukraine situation, there's uh, been discussions, uh, you know, about reactivating that movement. So, Canute, what do you do now about any of this? You you wanted a bomb shelter as a child. Are you a, a radiation prepper now? You know, I have I have a few emergency supplies uh, because of an earthquake or uh, you know something like that. But uh, no, I've I've just become totally fatalistic about you know if there if they if there's all out war and and we get nuked, uh, you know we're we're, we're toast. Not me, man. I've been looking for uh, 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 potassium iodide tablets, which are unfindable, at least ones that are, are FDA approved. And uh, and I'm I'm buying Campbell soup for my crawl space. I figure the crawl space has got all that cement. It's got to be better than the garage. And you know, I don't know if I don't know if it sounds like we're being overly lighthearted about this. I sort of. Uh, it, I don't know what else we can be, all the loss and, you know, suffering that's going on. I realize that I'm taking sort of a light tone with this um, because, you know, we go on and, and live our lives. But I'm, I am I am curious how people, you know, how we take this in. And do we even know how we're taking it in? You know, I, I you talk about being having been terrified when you were a kid. Were you aware you were terrified or did you just look back and go, man, I just sort of absorbed a kind of gloom and fear that I was... I didn't even know to feel bad about at the time. Oh, I was terrified at the time. And, mm. and uh, you know, in 1962, I, I kept a 
scrapbook where I would cut out pictures of Castro and Kennedy and Khrushchev and whatnot. I had a little, like a little news thing, but I, yeah, no, I was really scared. I, I was serious about my family. You know, it was like, I thought they were committing, you know, parental malpractice by not building a bomb shelter. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, but you, you just kind of learn to live with it. Uh, and then you, and then you forget about it. And I, I think it's important to remember that like we, we think you mentioned that you have supplies in the case of an earthquake. And if there's a different kind of disaster, those things will be useful, but there's not a ton that we as individuals can do to combat the effects of a, a nuclear attack. And it's important to recognize that it's not the difference between whether you have those right tablets in your, you know, medicine mm-hmm. cabinet. It's more important to, think about what we're doing nationally and internationally, those things have the impact. Honestly, even earthquake response, a lot of what our government does and how we respond will impact who survives, who doesn't. But having a personal bomb shelter isn't particularly practical. And I don't know that people now even think that that is what would make a huge difference. You got to come out eventually. Yeah. Well, finally, (laughs) along those lines, the Washington state actually outlawed making emergency plans for the survival of a nuclear attack. This is back in the 80s. I think the idea was we don't even want to be planning to survive the unthinkable. And and uh, and in recent years, there have been proposals to roll back that law and and uh, and make make preparations, make plans. Although, Knut, you pointed out it's hard to evacuate the Puget Sound area. Oh, well, yeah, it is. You know, they did build a, a fallout shelter, which still exists. Under I-5, right, but kind of between Green Lake and Roosevelt neighborhood, uh, it's really? I just used for storage nowadays. Hmm. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a place where the community was supposed to evacuate, and you probably could have gotten thirty or forty people in there. But you know, you're, it's right in the middle of the city. I mean, you would have created a mass panic. Uh, just and who would you leave it, uh, leave out, etc. Yeah, that could be one of the problems with making such plans. You're not really going to make a big difference. And, and, and sometimes there are scares that are, right? We, we have scares that are unwarranted. And so, yeah, maybe that's part of it, too, is, is uh, that the planning yeah. sol- creates more problems than it solves. I do want to mention one thing really quick. So I actually worked in, in, in an atomic bunker, which is in Bothell, when I uh, worked for FEMA. And, uh, you know, you go in through these giant blast uh, proof doors and down underground and they have uh, and it had been converted to the FEMA headquarters. Uh, it's a former Nike site uh, up there. And, and there were still vestiges of the bomb shelter stuff in there. And one of the things that really uh, struck me was the toilets were set on these huge steel springs and they were blast proof toilets. <laughs> and I was like, what's a blast proof toilet? And they said, well, if the bomb drops, the toy, the plumbing won't break, and the toilet and the plumbing will all, you know, do this uh, kind of thing. Wow, it will move. I, I just remembered. I was like, wow, I never thought of that. You know, no. You know what this brings to mind is the shifting Earth and how that can affect water mains, Amanda, which we're going to talk about on this show in just a few minutes. So uh, we'll, we'll get there. You're listening to KUOW's Week in Review. Before we leave the, uh, uh, blessedly, thankfully, leave the, the topic of war, you know, the, the Russian invasion and the sanctions on Russian oil 
are getting some of the blame for the rise in gas prices here, though they were already rising. And Amanda, you reported this week about gasoline thefts. Will you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, some police departments, and there's also been some reports, are sort of telling people to beware that gasoline theft is a thing um, and that it may become worse because the prices are higher. Uh, I talked to a couple of auto repair shops and they sort of said that they haven't noticed an increase lately with like gas prices, but gasoline theft is sort of a general crime issue, kind of like catalytic converter theft hmm. um, or, you know, having a damaged ignition because someone tried to steal your car. Um, and, and they say that that's sort of been an issue throughout the last year. How do you steal someone's gas? Well, um, so the old fashioned way to do it is to siphon it through the gas cap, but apparently newer cars make this a little bit difficult. So the new way that people do it is they either cut the gas line or they drill directly into the tank underneath your car. It drains out into a container and then you run off with the gasoline. Uh, I just heard a story of a friend who went to go pick up a U-Haul uh, truck just this last weekend, got to the U-Haul lot in Soto and found all uh, it just smelled like gas and they were all in a flurry trying to deal with the fact that a lot of their trucks had been hit. Uh, with with the same type of things that some had been siphoned, some had been uh, gas cut. So it was certainly the first I heard about it. And then I read Amanda's story and uh, was a bit, yeah, a bit surprised. Yeah, that would be a target rich environment, a fleet of vehicles, unless it's really locked up well. Right. And often, um, you know, these commercial vehicles are just sitting there over the weekend. Maybe there aren't a lot of people around. Maybe there isn't fencing and they do become a target. Yeah. Amanda, do you know much about what's done with the stolen gas? If it's if it's being sold on some sort of black market, or is it for sort of for personal use by the thieves? I think the perception is that it's being used for personal use to run generators. Um, yeah. Okay. Knut, hmm. any uh, you were telling us before we came on the air that you learned this week what a catalytic converter is. <laughs> yeah, I mean. The, you know, there's been a, a wave of thefts of catalytic converters. Yes. I really, I knew they had something to do with pollution, but uh, yeah, I found a Scientific American video that explained it. And, you know, they work because they're, you know, three extremely rare metals in each catalytic converter. And uh, so people steal them and, and then uh, because catalytic converters don't have a VIN number or something on them, they actually send them to companies that uh, recover that metal to make more catalytic converters mm -hmm. because uh, some of these uh, metals are so rare in this one called rhodium. Uh, catalytic converters have about uh, one to two grams of rhodium and it's extraordinarily rare mineral. So the demand is going up. The rarity is, you know, there's a really finite supply and, uh, it goes for $600 a gram. Hmm. Uh, an ounce of rhodium is $18,000 on, on the trading market. Gold is about $2,000. Yeah. Platinum is about $1,000 an ounce or something. So there's, there's real value in some of these things. And, you know, you cut them out of a car and, and uh, they're easy to sell apparently. And um, yeah, so you know, who knew? I, I, I certainly had no idea that I was, you know, driving around with something of value hooked to my muffler. It makes me wonder whether all the electric vehicles that we want so much, 
you know, whether it's, I don't know, uh, how much lithium goes for, or whatever's in these, uh, in, in the vehicles of the future, just seem like, are we going to have more and more valuable uh, cars sitting around? Okay, so I've given you lots of things to worry about this week, I feel. Uh, really overachieved on that front. Uh, but that's not all we can review is. We're figuring out what happened this week and what it means, and we're going to continue to do that in just a moment after we take a real short break. And uh, we'll be right back with you. You might be watching us on YouTube or Facebook as we're live streaming Week in Review. Just search KUOW Public Radio there. Uh, or maybe you're listening to me, Bill Radke, and we've got Seattle Met Deputy Editor Allison Williams, Crosscut columnist Knut Berger, and Seattle Times reporter Amanda Zoe. So this is a story that I have been paying attention to, but we haven't talked about it on this show yet, the amazing sliding house in Bellevue. And Amanda, you have done some reporting on this. For listeners who don't know it, will you tell us the story? Yeah, um, so the story we've mostly heard through the homeowner, which is in on January 18th or 17th, he woke up at 4 a.m. from a neighbor who said, there's a lot of water coming down your driveway. He went outside. He said he saw over two inches of water pouring down his driveway, and he drove up the hill sort of to behind his house and could hear the water when his neighbor called again and said that his house had just slid down a hill. Um, his wife and dog were in that house. They ended up being fine. Uh in terms of physical injuries, but now they're sort of, they've just filed a claim with the city of Bellevue. They said that Bellevue is responsible for this um, because the water main broke before the house slid. Um, they filed a claim for $5 million uh, to the homeowner. They feel that this is really simple. You know, our house had been here for decades. There had been heavy rains before there wasn't heavy rains before this house slid. And now this water main broke and, you know, our house was destroyed. Um, the issue might be a little bit more complicated when it comes to liability is what I'm hearing from lawyers who've dealt with the cases like this. Um, you know, Bellevue might say, you know, your house wasn't built to last or, you know, the private property where the pipe was um, wasn't maintained properly. There's sort of a lot of unknowns about the situation right now. You know, this is a lawsuit that could take years to resolve. Um, but the homeowners are sort of placing attention on the water system in Bellevue, which is made out of, a lot of which is made out of something called asbestos cement, which is an aging sort of material that's not used anymore. And the issue is that um, when it fails, it fails catastrophically. It doesn't really form small leaks. So the homeowner is saying, you know, you knew there was a risk that this could happen to someone, you should pay up. Well, that's a great summary. Um, any any reaction to to this? From other, I'll tell you that I reacted. First of all, a neighbor was number one awake at four a.m. Number two happened to notice the water running down the neighbor's driveway. Number three called him about water to let him know. Number four, the owner answered his phone at four a.m. You know, drives away, uh, house slides, and as the Seattle Times reported, he goes back, calls for his wife. She yells, "I'm upstairs!" He says, "Come down the stairs." She says, there's no stairs. They're gone. I mean, just wow, wow, wow. And then this whole question about what to blame. Um, fascinating to me. But uh, yeah, Allison or Canute? Well, I, well, a couple of things. I mean, just as you were kind of walking through the steps there, I was thinking they, they clearly don't live in a neighborhood that's affected by the Seattle freeze. You yeah. Know? 
the neighbor <laughs> paying attention to his neighbor and calling and warning and you know exactly that kind of help you know in in a freeze neighborhood it might have been you know mm-hmm. just let it happen and then go peek out the window yeah um but the the thing that caught me was sort of to me was the very lead about asbestos cement there's water drinking water running through asbestos cement pipes Mm. Um, you know i mean whether or not it had something to do with the with the and apparently there's still hundreds of miles of these in bellevue is it correct and they're and they're slowly replacing uh replacing these pipes but just anything with the word asbestos in it, you know, raises alarm, let alone drinking water. I mean. <clears throat> yeah. Amanda, do you know anything about whether we should be concerned about drinking water contacting asbestos cement? Yeah. Uh, this is actually one of the reasons the material isn't used anymore, uh, though, though I'll add that um, it's sort of more of the reputation that has driven cities away from it. My understanding is when it comes to asbestos in like a liquid form with drinking water, some experts say that it's okay as long as the pipe isn't degrading, like it isn't, you know, actively leaching into the water, um, which is a thing that's actually hard to monitor for most water municipalities because there's just miles and miles of these pipes. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding is that the health links between drinking asbestos, if it is leaching, and developing like GI issues is not super strong, but also not not being researched, it's, it's a little bit more unclear than it is with the inhalation risk, which is mostly what we hear about when it comes to asbestos. Right. Well, if it's truly safe, Bellevue should put it on a sign. <laughs> they do They do test for home it. Home of asbestos cement drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do test for it. That is part of, um, I do know that is something they monitor. Uh, honestly, my takeaway from a lot of this is realizing how little I as a citizen and even a homeowner understand about our, our infrastructure and how much I appreciate reporters like Amanda that if I were to sit down and try to understand the water pipe systems, I'm not in Bellevue, but even in Seattle, it would be really a difficult and I, I'll admit I'm not going to do that. So <laughs> the fact that um, you're reaching out trying to understand the state of our system and what the risks are is just my appreciation for local news is what I think I came out of this with because it could possibly be a widespread issue and we wouldn't have thought about it otherwise. Oh. And the photos are non-pareil. Uh, I, I guess our, our state's new tow plow won't be of any help in clearing that, uh, clearing that house away. Um, a tow plow is a, this is another Amanda Zoe story, a tow plow is a big blade that a snowplow truck tows along its side so it can clear two lanes of traffic at once. And uh, Amanda, our, our state transportation department has a, a new tow plow. And for some reason today, tow plows need names. Yeah, um, I, I do wonder if this is sort of a morale thing for WashDOT. Um, they do have some pretty funny names. I, I only remember, I think one of them is like Sir Plows a lot. Um, of course it And is. they say that what's popular generally for names is uh, Star Wars references like R2 Plow 2. Um, mm. So, you know, really high quality puns here. Mm. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I th- you, they, are, they have, I think th- you, you wrote three other plows. So they started naming them when that was a fresh idea. You know, this start, I think this started with, with Bodie McBoatface, which is the... <laughs> A British ship that that the internet 
got to vote on its name. And, you know, I thought Bodie McBoatface was hilarious 10 years ago or whenever that happened. And now we do it for Washington ferry boats and tunnel boring machines and uh, and tow plows. Can I... Yeah, well, I, I think the PR people are getting desperate. <laughs> you, you know, when you have to do like publicity for, you know, some obscure piece of machinery that gets dragged along behind a truck, uh, you know, and, and you can say, oh, well, it's social engagement. We're trying to get people, <laughs> and, you know, feel like they're part of this and, and get the names coming in, you know, but it, it, it just seems like, I mean, naming a ship is one thing, but it seems like it's kind of devolving down to, you know, yeah, you wonder, you wonder what they're going to be naming naming next jackhammers or <laughs> you know where does it end trailer hitches trailer hitches exactly yeah. well this is our tax dollars though so maybe it's uh maybe we want to we want to know we want a little framed photo of the of the the tow plow that we adopted and that makes us feel better about anteing up yeah i guess if you can convince people that infrastructure is pets yes <laughs> It really is. It's like an adopt-a-pet thing. Allison, anything to add here before we uh, start to close out our program? I, I'm with you. It's a little eye-roll-inducing now. I think it's maybe kind of the thing that would be better suited for maybe like a public school kids contest as far as, mm. you know, learning what the, you know, wash dot is maybe has better place. But, hey, social media, it's by far the not the dumbest thing that is happening on social media like this moment i'm sure so, you know whatever as we speak you know that's a good point if all the adults are going to come up with is plowy mcplow plow and sir plows a lot there's why not why not let the kids have a crack at it you know can we how about can we have a rule that the name has to relate to what the piece of equipment does you cannot call it ob plow kenobi or, or R2 Plow 2 or Plowosaurus Rex. If it goes to the kids, it's probably less Star Wars and more like, I don't know, Paw Patrol references that none of the rest of us will get. Right, right. Sure. Maybe full-time daylight savings time will will <laughs> make people so exhausted they won't waste their time on this stuff. Yes. By the way, we have uh, on this program used the phrase daylight savings time and we've said nuclear and I know that these are uh, will set off air raid sirens for many of our <laughs> listeners. So the email address is bradkey at kuow.org. Feel free. Just go. Just start typing. I'm ready for it. Uh -oh. bradkey at kuow.org. <laughs> it's all my fault, Bill. <laughs> Actually, the state, our state's third tow plow is called the Big Laplowski, and which I'm not mad at. So I think that's cool. The name ideas will be accepted until, uh, I think, today, Friday, as we talk. And there's going to be a public vote and a winner announced on, naturally, April 1st. It's time for the end of our program where we uh, we give listeners some something. I know we talked about attacks and thefts and stuff and slides. So was there anything that made you hopeful this week or just made you smile? Well, I'll say anyone who's watching our live stream can appreciate my border colleague jumped on the couch behind me and oh. has been sprawled upon the couch throughout this entire um situation so Your i dog is upside I, down i mean I, what if i say it looks stuffed i don't know i don't mean to for that to be alarming or, or insensitive yes. it just is in quite a that's a yeah. good reason to tune in there's a there's a taxidermy situation going on behind me so that is yes. honestly what's making me smile the most right now i love the hudson bay blanket by the way <laughs> 
What's a Hudson Bay yeah. blanket? It's a, it's, this is a Pendleton blanket with a uh, Hudson Bay uh, Hudson inspired Bay. pattern <laughs> and mostly dog hair. So that's and dog hair. It's beautiful. Your headphones are he's, beautiful. Why don't, he's ever, ready why for don't daylight savings. He's napping yes. all day. This is how he combats it. Right, so. right. Amanda, did anything uh, rate a smile with you this week? Well, I had a little bit of a made me frown, which is I applied for two different permits through the National Recreation Service. I wanted to hike the enchantments in Washington and I wanted to get a backcountry permit for the North Cascades. It's a lottery system. Uh, I was informed this week that I received neither, but I'm excited for the summer nonetheless. Uh, Oh, and she just froze up. Oh. I want to hear what she's excited to do about this summer, oh. and I may never know. Yeah, me too. Can it, can, I'm, yeah. I'm feeling for her. I was zero for three on in, uh, permit lotteries this year, so maybe oh. I'll share with her some ideas of places you can go without a permit. There are tons. Yes, permitting. Yeah, that sounds permit. good. Uh, Canute, what about you? Anything well, mine's is sports-related. Um, I'm a Seahawks fan, and yeah. I endured the offseason last year with all of this talk about is Russell Wilson going to go or stay? Is he going to be traded or not? We have an answer to the question and can move on. Oh. I'm not happy that he's leaving. But the, the fact that he is leaving, I am happy that we don't have to speculate anymore and we can just get on with the uh, rebuilding or whatever it is we're going to do. So that makes me happy. Let's welcome Colin Kaepernick and then move on together. Uh, Amanda, awesome. Amanda, you have returned. Um, what are you going to do this summer without the backcountry permits? Oh, I, I'm still going to do those hikes. Um, oh. I just will not be camping. <laughs> Got it. Got it. And that's what makes me smile. Hike all night if you have to. Okay. Well, thanks for coming. I just I will just add Woodland, Woodland Zoo is preparing for Fecal Fest, where you pick up your zoo dew, which could be used to fertilize the cherry trees now blossoming on the UW campus. The Seattle Rain have blossomed into a team that now plays at Lumen Field, home of the Seahawks and the Sounders. The Sounders' rival, the Vancouver Whitecaps, are now only a fast boat away because the Victoria Clippers getting ready to set sail again. And when you go to Canada, as long as you're fully vaxxed, you soon will no longer have to have a negative COVID test. So some some signs of spring there. Uh, and I'm so grateful that all of you have been uh, Week in Review. Thanks for coming on and walking through the week with us. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Been great to see you. That's Canute uh, Berger, CrossCut columnist, and of course, uh, Allison Williams, deputy editor at Seattle Met, and Amanda Zoe, Seattle Times reporter, helping you through what happened this week and what it means. The show is produced by Kevin Kinestet with social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. And we sound great because of announcer and board operator Bernard Wallet. And I sure appreciate you listening. Talk to you next week on Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke.